Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N-Guitars.com If you're a cannabis business owner looking to expand into new markets and need guidance and support you can trust, consider Collateral Base a group that has done it before in multiple merit-based and limited market states. Collateral Base was founded by an experienced cannabis attorney with highly educated consultants with master's degrees and years of experience in the cannabis industry. The Collateral Base team is confident they know cannabis licensing better than any of their peers. And I encourage you to see for yourself. It just takes one phone call. If you're ready to expand your cannabis business into new limited markets, contact Collateral Base today at 309-306-1095. That's 309-306-1095. Or visit collateralbase.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything is Personal. Super excited to have this great guest. Not only is she a badass, I would consider her a friend, Ms. Teresa Jackson, CEO of Weedico. Thank you for coming on. Thank you so much, Lynn, for having me. I've been so, so excited about finally sitting here and talking on your podcast. So I know we're going to have a great conversation. And again, I appreciate your friendship. And I know we're getting to how we met and how we how this come to be. And I'm just excited. Let's get well, it. This is all about you. I mean, we can talk <laughs> about that. But before we jump into it, I just want to um, kind of talk about a, a little bit of a controversy. Uh, it has to do with a T-shirt that I wore on a previous show. If I can disclose, you did reach out to me and request that I not wear my beautiful Funkadelic shirt with this beautiful woman on the front with her Afro and strategically uh, has her, you know, all covered. There's nothing there, but it's suggestive. So I was wondering, was there a specific issue you had with that shirt? Well, first of all, you know, I was just kidding with you. Second of all, it was a great shirt. I'm I'm actually looking for that darn shirt, right? Because it was so awesome. But the part that was striking was, you know, I didn't expect you to have that shirt on for your show. And it was beautiful. The lady had the big afro and I'm natural, of course. But it was just the position of, of her assets. Can you, and I was like, can you describe that position to our uh, listeners? 
Well, the, I don't know if you want me to describe that position. Basically, audience, uh, it was her with her legs gap wide open. So when you saw the shirt, you saw some things <laughs> that I thought was like, hey, Lynn, were you sure you wanted to wear that shirt? But it was a great shirt. And I was just giving him the business about it. Thank but it was you. really a great shirt. Well, I, I did not wear that shirt, but I did wear my stakes as high shirt. Uh, and the reason, the reason why, because plug two... Dave Dove passed away this week. I'm a huge De La Soul fan and yes. stakes is high. I mean, you know, you name uh, potholes in my lawn. Oh, I mean, I grew up with that stuff and it's just uh, 54 years old. So unfortunate I uh, passed away. So in tribute, uh, this may be one of my favorite songs. So in tribute to, uh, to Dave. Um, so now back to you. I kind of, so I was doing research and there was so much, you have so many interviews, you do such a great job and you talk about uh, a lot of the work that you're doing. And it's fantastic. And we'll get into it, but very little about, there's some, but very little about your background, like, so how you grew up and everything else. So I want to kind of dive into that first and I'll ask you first, where did you grow up? Yeah, I grew up in South Carolina, um, Southern Baptist. I was the fifth of six children. Um, and you know, I, I came into the military because my brother was actually in the Navy. Um, I got accepted into the Air Force Academy and there was a clerical error, um, that didn't allow me to go. And I was actually going to be the first, um, Air Force cadet in my little town that ever left my little town to do um, the Air Force Academy. So there was this whole big thing about Sharice's going to the Air Force Academy. And then I didn't end up going to the Air Force Academy, but I did go to the Air Force. And so, um, yeah, deeply rooted in the church, um, deeply rooted in family. Again, having, um, four older siblings and a, a younger sibling. Um, it, it's, it, it, that's who I am. So Southern girl from the core. <laughs> you, you grew up in a, in a very small town in South Carolina, right? Like, uh, one of those one horse, uh, one traffic light and one grocery store kind of town, right? Yeah, Lynn. And let me tell you, um, this little town, uh, it's, it's gotten worse since, since I left there back in, um, 19, um, I left there in 1998. No, no, no. 1989 is when I left there, when I left after high school and, it was one of the lowest ranking school districts wow. in the entire state. So, and there was poverty. I mean, we probably had back in that time, maybe 3000 people in that little town. So it was, um, yeah, when, when, when I got out of there, I got out of there um, because it was the only way that I could see myself, you know, making something of myself and not staying back in that little town. And so um, I, I, I think it's a blessing that all six of us, all of my siblings are college educated kids. My parents gave us um, three decisions. You either went to college, you went to the military, or you had to go to work. And so all of us have either bachelor's degrees and um, some of us actually have master's degrees living from that little town. So you're the second from the youngest, right? Yeah. Is that like... Yeah. Uh, What's the age difference between all the kids? Yeah, so um, there is from me to the oldest. That's four, four is eight years, and okay. then from me to the sister that's closest to me is only four years, and then me and my younger sister are only one year apart. So, is was everybody sort of close uh, as a family? 
Well, I mean, since my oldest sister was eight years yeah. older than me, you know, of course we have a relationship, but by the time, you know, I got into high school and things of that nature, she was well into her collegiate years. And then everyone was one year after that. So I would say my sister and I, who are four years apart, and my sister, that's one year difference, that's younger, we're close. But um, I would say my closest is my brother, man. We had that that military thing in common. He's seven years, um, my my senior. However, I mean, you're talking, anybody knows anything about me and, and what I've done, what I've been through, what I've gone through. Um, he He is my go-to in my family. Got it. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Uh, well, before before that, I just want to get clear on the on the the trajectory. So, you joined the military when you were seventeen. Is that correct? Yeah, my parents had to sign for me, Lynn. I mean, when when the Air Force Academy thing went awry and I didn't get to go to the Air Force Academy, I had to go somewhere. Remember, my parents gave me three options, right? And so um, I decided to go into the military, and I had not turned eighteen yet. So my parents had to sign for me to get approval for me to go into the military. And that's what I did. And then I turned 18, you know, when I was in basic training. And then you spent 23 years in the military, right? And then uh, 10 years of that was uh, uh, like a a, uh, military nurse. What does that call? Active duty military combat. That's what I was trying to figure out. The combat nurse, right? Yeah. So, but... But I'm trying to I'm trying to think you're in the military, but you also you also have to and you're deployed, I, I would imagine. You have to go to school. Like how does that even work out? I mean, that's that's a lot of stuff going on uh, at the same time. Yeah. So 17, I came in, my parents signed for me. And not to correct you, but I'm I need all of my, my active <laughs> duty time. Twenty three. 3.5 years and 14 days to be exact. Okay. Um, so, <laughs> so um, 17 years, you know, my, my parents signed for me, I went to basic training. That was, you know, um, four to six months, went to technical school um, for the military. I was actually a logistics officer. So the first job that I did for the military was I was a logistics officer. I actually ordered parts for the C-17s, the F-15 aircrafts. And so I went to my first base, I got married, had babies, got divorced, um, became a military nurse, got my bachelor's degree. The Air Force actually paid for me to um, get my bachelor's degree. Um, And then, of course, you know, the military was at war at that time. And so as soon as they got me all trained up to be this combat nurse, they deployed me. And so I was deployed to Iraq in 2005, Iraq in 2006. And then I went to Afghanistan in 2011, all as a combat nurse on the front lines, taking care of these soldiers when they get off the battlefield. Which conflicts were those? Was that something, freedom? I forgot what they called all the different conflicts. OSF, yeah. Operation Enduring Freedom. I want to understand this because I I was never in the military and, uh, and I, you know, Obviously, thank you for your service and everything else that you've contributed. It's it's, it's amazing to have this volunteer force that is, I mean, such an incredible, incredible thing that that everybody, all of you do. I mean, the mindset though, like when you're actually you're in basic training, you're getting trained, you're you're going to be a nurse, but now you're deployed. Like, what goes through your mind when you're when you're getting onto a military base in a different country knowing that there's a conflict there's a war going on like how how do you deal with that from basic uh, training to to that 
Yeah, of course, when you're in the U.S., you're safe, right? <laughs> there's there's no conflict in the U.S. So having to go through basic training, that was easy breezy for me. You know, I was an athlete in high school. So having to do all of the push up, sit up, run. I mean, I had that down pat. That was no issue for me. But when you go to war, that's totally different because not only are you leaving the comforts of your own home, the comforts and the safety of being in the U.S., um, you're going into foreign territory where people are really after you. They really want to kill you, right? Mm -hmm. And so for me, my first deployment in 2005, uh, I say this on many of my podcasts and interviews, I believe the military prepared us to be nurses, but they did not prepare us for what we were going to see. And so for me, when as soon as we got off that aircraft, um, it was in the summer. As soon as we got off the aircraft, it was hot, of course. And then we were already under fire. So when we land, we were already under attack. So imagine this girl who's never been to war before, uh, had no idea what to expect besides some of the injuries and to hear gunshots and hear explosions and hearing the, seeing the panic all around me. That was something disturbing, but it's something about the human instinct or at least maybe it's the military instinct. It's about survival. So I didn't have time to worry about Oh my God, you know, where's my gun? You just instinctively knew what to do. So the military trained us enough to be able to do that. But it was, it was, you know, that other stuff that we weren't prepared for. I wasn't prepared, Len, to see amputations, you know, one, two, three, even four amputations. I wasn't prepared to see, you know, 60% burns. I wasn't prepared to be identifying charred bodies in body bags. I mean, those are the things that we had to do in war because we were in an isolated location. We were in another country and we had the combat hospital that all the soldiers were coming through in order to get home. So we were the first stop before these guys got stabilized enough to fly to Germany and to, to fly home to Walter Reed. I mean, it's a, it's a great sort of uh, overview because I, I really, I really think that we watch a lot of TV and we watch a lot of movies and all that stuff. And we see this and we become desensitized to that. But I think that by you describing really seeing human beings, I mean, this is brothers and sisters who are, you know, have their arms blown off their their legs blown off. And to deal with that one thing, I, and I don't know this uh, once again, cause I was, you're, you, you get into a routine where you're not, thinking about that, you're just acting. And that's what military trains you to do over and over. And, over. and that's anything you do. When you learn something over and over, it becomes a habit. And you think that while you're under fight or flight, you still can go into your basics and, and know that there's a routine you have to do. But at some point, all that that you just witnessed, all that is stuffed down, somehow comes up again. So now you have to deal with that and maybe not in line of fire. Now, when you're deployed there or when you come back and you start sort of thinking and processing that, how did that affect you personally? Let me tell you, that I'm, I'm glad that you went into that transition because I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress. I mean, how could I not be, right? Seeing the things that I just described to you guys. And I mean, that's just to scrape the surface. That's not even giving you more details of the things that I've seen. I shouldn't have seen some of the things that I've seen. And so I came back diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder. And one of the things the therapist said to me, because my first appointment was 2005. I went in 2006, the following year. By this time, Lynn, I was already a single mom. So I'm having to take care of twin daughters who are high schoolers, 
middle schoolers, going through adolescence, going through college applications, having to manage all that and still having to manage being a full-time active duty nurse and being deployed. And one of the things the therapist said to me, because I did not have a PTSD break until 2012. So I went from 2005 until 2012 before the PTSD episode happened, before it reared its ugly head. And so the therapist said, what I was able to do is compartmentalize. She said, you are a master at compartmentalizing because there's no way in hell with what you've seen, what you were telling us, how you're able to um, sense all of these things, the smells, the sounds that you should have been able to deal with all of that without any symptoms showing their ugly head. And because I was able to compartmentalize, Lynn, the things that I saw in 2005, I didn't bring those back home because I immediately went into mommy mode. What do the girls need? I'm going back to work every day. I'm at Walter Reed. So I didn't have time to think about my symptoms. Went back in 2006, already knew what I was going to see because I went back to Iraq again. So then it was routine. You know, you got to work 12 hour shift. You know, you're under attack. You know what kind of injuries you're going to witness. Did the same thing when I got back, took care of my daughters, went back to Walter Reed, had that same routine over and over again. And then when I went to Afghanistan, same thing. But in 2012, when my daughters had to go off to college and I no longer had to take care of them and have them in that equation to keep my mind on something else, that's when PTSD reared his ugly head. And that's when all of the sounds, all of the symptoms came to be. And I, I knew I needed help when that happened. So how did that, how did that show up for you? Yeah, let me, man, I still remember this to this day. It showed up because I had just dropped my girls off to college. So I was coming back home by myself in a lonely condo with my little doggie. She was a beautiful shih tzu, Roxy. And Roxy and I went on a walk. I got back home, you know, all in tears. I'm all alone. My daughters are leaving me kind of thing. And I sat on my sofa in decompressing, long day, moving kids in. Anybody that knows when you're moving kids into college is an all day situation. <laughs> it's a lot of work. And so after I was able to relax, um, Lynn, then all of a sudden those things that I talked to you about just flooded my memory. And I... To be honest with you, I don't know how I got on the floor in the corner of my condo in the fetal position. But when I came out of that episode, it was because my doggy Roxy was licking my toes and she brought me out of that PTSD episode that I was having. And I remembered everything. I remembered the soldiers that I had taken care of. I remembered the smells of those charred bodies. I remember everything that I had packed down in that moment. I don't even know how long I was sitting in that corner in the fetal position. I remember it was daytime when I got back, and but it was nighttime when Roxy you know, woke me up out of that episode. Yeah, it's an amazing thing that, uh, you know, our brain has. And, and some people have a greater capacity based on their genetic predispositions to take tra uh, trauma and kind of stuff it down. And this this fear extinction kind of a gene that's associated with stress reactivity and everything else. And I talk to athletes about this. And I'm not comparing, you know, athletes to veterans, but there is a correlation between that. And, and I, I talk to these athletes and say, you know, when I'm in the trenches and there's 300-pound linemen running at me, I'm calm. 
Everything's slow motion. I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm not even thinking. I'm just acting. When I'm home, I have the window open. It's a beautiful day in LA. The birds are chirping. That's when it starts. And I'm like, yeah, because now whatever trauma that you, you were distracted from your trauma, it's still there. Unless we have a neurological condition, we're always dealing with, you know, we want to push that down and we're not dealing with this right now. So that's our, our own survival instead of our brain trying to protect us. But when that comes up, now you're dealing with it in, in those quiet moments as you described. Yeah, it, it was tough. And, you know, being someone on active duty. So my episode happened when I was still in uniform. I was still active duty. I was still working at Walter Reed. I was still on that high level, you know, ICU nurse expectations of an officer. I had to, you know, meet those expectations. And so I, I didn't have any, anyone to go and talk to. So I dealt with that all alone while secretly going to therapy without anyone knowing that I was going to therapy. And the reason why I chose that path is because I had seen my other nurses that couldn't cope. And I saw what the military had done to them. They would move them out of the ICUs, away from patient care, put them in other departments. Some of them had to leave active duty because they couldn't, they, they couldn't cope. Right. And so I knew if I had told anyone, disclosed to anyone what I was dealing with, I was also in fear. Maybe that would happen to me. And I knew I just needed to get to retirement <laughs> by this time. I knew I wanted to retire and I need to hang in there until 2013. And so I covered it up. I didn't tell anyone. And because I was in therapy, they they could not, not tell my commanding officer that I was in therapy. They could disclose that. Right. And so I had that shield of protection. So on my days off, I would go to therapy. And on my, on my days I went to work, no one knew anything. Again, being able to compartmentalize, I can shut it off, go to work. When I got home, that's when I had to deal with me. I, I mean, just as a, from a cultural standpoint in the military, uh, how, like, they, you know, everybody knows that you, you go through trauma, then you're going to have some ramifications from that trauma of being active duty. But there's still a fear in this culture to be able to. It's like it's like uh, when uh, you know gay people were in a, in a don't ask, don't tell kind of policy. You know that was okay, but it's still going on. I mean, everybody knows. And the same thing with the military. You go through active duty, you see some shit, and you're gonna be like, all right, you know these they need help because all these military personnel who are now not active duty anymore, they're sitting there and now they have to deal with this because they didn't tell anybody. Is there, do you see that something's happening in the culture of the military to be able to be more open to that, to understand that, you know, your commanding officers, you can have that conversation uh, that you, you need some help without the fear of, oh my God, I'm going to lose my rank and lose my job. I'm gonna, is that happening? Yeah, I think so, Lynn. I think over the years, people because folks are now understanding what PTSD is, right? When I was in and the years after I, you know, deployed 2005, 2006, you know, folks really didn't have a title to what we were coming back with. They thought it was PTSD. Then I went from PTSD to PTS. So everyone was trying to understand what this diagnosis was because it's different for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I believe when people kind of saw what was happening at that time in 2005, 2006, and folks not being able to cope with what the trauma they saw and people were getting out, people, you know, couldn't, you know, stay along bedside anymore. It couldn't be nurses anymore. It created a stigma that if you had PTSD or had a diagnosis of PTSD, that meant you were weak. 
That meant that exactly. you were not, a, 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 you know, a stellar nurse. That meant that you couldn't be a leader or a commander or a clinical director because now you have, you know, the scarlet PTSD on your forehead and no one really wanted to understand it. So people were silent like me because they were like, oh, my God, I'm, I'm not weak. I can still be a nurse. I can still do all these things. I just need help with those other things. When I shut this off, how do I cope with me? And people weren't trusting because the stigma was out there, Lynn. The stigma was if you had PTSD, you were weak, um, you you were you know not able to perform. And I think that's why people like myself didn't tell anyone. Um, I think over the years it's changed. I know some folks that are on active duty now, and there is help available to anyone that discloses or shows signs and symptoms. And so I think things have changed from 2005 until now because it had to. There were too many people coming back having this condition, and not everybody can compartmentalize like me and hold it in for years, right? So I think as these symptoms exacerbate in people's lives, you know, the military had to shift. They had to provide resources. They had to provide help. And they had to also start destigmatizing this diagnosis. And I think that's changed over the years. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because there's such a stigma and a fear. So a- after you got done with your military service and, and uh, retired and uh, honorably, and uh, now you're, first of all, you're dealing with your own stuff, but also First, you're, you're a healthcare professional, so I'm sure other people have come to you. What motivated you to sort of do, and, and we didn't talk about what you're doing now, but I, I want to kind of lead this uh, down a path because you also wrote a memoir and then uh, all these things are healing. So you have to heal yourself to, before you can help others, right? You have to fill your cup before yeah. you, have, you can run. So what was your journey and then how did you start seeing and uh, seeing that there's opportunities uh, they're fulfilling to help others as well. Yeah. So to 2013, I retired from the military. Transitioning out of the military was hard for me, not because of the PTSD, but just because I was in the military for so long. I mean, I grew up in the military. I became a woman in the military at 17 coming in. And so then to you know go from a structured, disciplined environment to a civilian world that's not so disciplined, that's not so structured, um, it was difficult. And, and a lot of veterans still to this day have that issue and challenge of, of shifting from that kind of world to the civilian world. So I still did nursing after I left in 2013. Um, if you look at my resume, you would have been like, what is this girl doing? Because I could never find a fit <laughs> because either I was too much for management because I was all about, let's get the job done. Let's take care of these patients, yada, yada, yada. And they were like, why is she so high strung? You know, chill, relax. We can get this done. And so I think it was hard for me to find that fit. And then um, I finally found that fit, I would say, in 2016, 2017. I found that sweet spot of, of, a, of a place and a area in medical care that I had heart and passion for. And I was able to adjust. And I had some time outside of the uniform to kind of bring down my expectations of, of civilian of civilians as well. And I think that was my sweet spot in 2017, 2018. Continued to work as a nurse, did a couple of other things in some outpatient practices. 
along the way, people would come to me and be like, man, you're, how did you finish the military? Because this person, you know, got out because of her PTSD, this person got out. And I would tell people how I was coping. And, you know, I, I did not choose Lynn and this is not for everybody. I did not choose the pharmaceutical route. Of course, my therapist prescribed all these pharmaceuticals. Hey, Sharisa, here's something for your depression. Here's something for your anxiety. Here's something for your insomnia. I'm like, okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Because I was giving these pills to the veterans anyway. So I knew what the side effects were going to be, right? I knew, you know, if I took them, what the side effects were going to be. And I couldn't, I just couldn't have my body go through that. And so then I was like, man, I'm giving all this advice about how I'm coping because I use exercise, right? I use my spirituality. As I said, you know, being a Southern Baptist girl, I retreated to my spirituality um, and religion. And then meditation and therapy, right? Talk therapy, not no pharmaceutical, just talk therapy. And, you know, that's what helped me. And I was training actually for a half marathon, my very first half marathon. Again, I was physically fit coming out from the military. Oh, I can do a half marathon. No big deal. And I did that. And I tell you, no lie, Lynn, 13, probably at the 10th mile, it felt like my body was purging all the things that I was dealing with when I was training. And when I actually was in that half marathon and mile 10, just dripping in sweat. My body was purging. I was crying. I was like, oh, maybe this is my breakthrough. And that's really what it was. It's because I found what worked for me. And I decided to write a book, you know, a bestseller on Amazon called At Peace, Not In Pieces. Because a lot of folks think that you are in pieces when you have a PTSD um, diagnosis. And I wasn't in pieces. As a matter of fact, I was very peaceful once I realized what regimen worked for me. And so I just wanted to share it to the world, you know, the, the, you know, the principles that I use to continue to be at peace and not in pieces and powering through my pains of life, you know, being a single mom, divorce, financial ruins, getting myself out of all of that, having stellar credit, helping my daughters get through college debt free. I mean, all of those things on top of being a military person where anyone can read the book. And actually get something, be inspired and motivated by it. It's not even about a, you know, my memoirs of a PTSD survivor, but it's a memoir of how do you do the unthinkable and be unstoppable and be motivated and inspired and encouraged. And that's what the book is all about. So did other veterans uh, start contacting you after the memoir uh, came out and said, hey, I'm going through this as well? Uh, I'm having suicidal thoughts, or maybe they actually had people that, uh, it, you know, went ahead and took their own life and started coming to you. And then, and then if that's the case, what was, what action did you take, uh, when, when they started coming to you? Yeah, I think the closest encounter I had, Lynn, was a friend, um, the book had just come out and she was like, oh my gosh, you wrote a book. I was like, yeah. And, you know, most people that know me know that, you know, I don't get caught up into, you know, all of these accolades and things of that nature. That's just not who I am. And she was like, oh, my God, I would love to have your book. So I sent her the book and she actually read the book. And in the book, you actually get to take notes and see how you relate to you know my experience. Right. As a reader, how is that something relatable? Is that a tip? So it's like a little guide. You know, you can write your little notes in there. And she reached out to me and she was like, she said, this book changed my life. I was just like, oh, oh, oh wow. You know, how is that possible? And that's what she said. She said, I was on the brink of suicide. When um, I found you, I saw you on social media, I got the book. You you were my, la- my last hope. I was like, oh my God, I don't want that pressure. <laughs> I don't want that pressure of being someone's last hope. 
But that told me I was onto something. And it, it seemed like when she did that, the floodgates just opened. There were other people, moms, you know, um, um, different um, um, people in the community reaching out like, oh, my God, let's talk about what you have here. And I think just being able to know how impactful the book was, it prepared me for other conversations and even veterans coming to me who are on the brink of death and, and, and wanting to have hope. And what I've discovered, Lynn, over the years in talking to veterans who are thinking about suicide and want to take their life, these veterans really don't want to take their lives. They just want the pain to go away. Whatever pain they're dealing with, if it's the pain of some type of trauma, if it's the pain of a divorce, the pain of work, unemployment, hopelessness, homelessness, they just want the pain to go away. They don't really want to take their lives. They don't want to shoot themselves. They just want the pain to go away. And in those moments, you have about 13 seconds when someone calls you to be able to talk them down however you need to, you know, to, to give them hope. And so that's what I do when people call me. I don't even, I'm not even concerned about why we're here and why we're on this call. My concern is how can I give you hope? What can I say to you? What is going on in your life that will inspire you to not take your life today? And that's, that's, that's what I'm most proud of. And that's what the book led me to be able to do. Got it. And you also did some, some traveling along the way. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I think there was a, a Vatican visit. There was a, Uganda. I'm just trying to piece those together. Are they, are they connected? Are they separate trips? Or yeah, they, they the were Pope, separate trips. Pope called you up and said, uh, come, come over and uh, we'll have no, a No, no, no. I, I, I wish that was the case. But no. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> no, so, um, you know, along my journey after the military, you know, being out here speaking about PTSD, you know, I've been everywhere. Um, Prevention Magazine, Forbes, the New Yorker, people are finding me. And one of the organizations that found me is called Shiro's United. And Shiro's United actually um, had me as their uh, wall of hope and, and their um, they crowned me, you know, this, 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 uh, this accolade. Um, and I was like, oh, okay, that's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. And later when um, the, there was an issue um, um, in Amarici, when Amarici had that earthquake, there were a lot of people um, that died in Italy and uh, Shiro's United was asked to come and do some PTSD training. Mm-hmm. and to educate some folks over there in Italy about PTSD. So, um, you know, being that um, Shiro's United gave me this title, um, they called me up. They said, hey, we want to honor you by sending you and going with us to Amarici, Italy, and talk about PTSD. And so that's how I was able to get to the Vatican. Um, we, we, you know, got really close to the Pope. You know, I, I'm like arms distance from him, you know, get some blessings. Uh, but I, not, I didn't really get to sit and talk with him, but it was just a great experience to be there, to to walk around the Vatican, to talk to some leaders about PTSD, offer some assistance in how to some coping mechanisms, talking to a group of Congolese women that actually was there as well. And if you know anything about Congo and how women are treated in Congo, these Congolese women needed that support because of what they were suffering. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to actually help them with some coping coping mechanism. We were there for a week, week and a half. And so we did some really great work in Amarichi. Now, as far as the Africa trip, that is my nonprofit. Amongst all the other things that I do, I have a nonprofit called Project Give Hope. Well, Project Give Hope. It is cervical cancer screening. We actually take a medical device called the thermal coagulator to Africa. We do screenings 
Um, if, if a person has a precancerous lesion and we can eradicate that with the thermocoagulator, we actually eradicate the precancerous lesion in 20 seconds um, using this device. So I go there every year to teach on cervical cancer, um, mentor to young girls, um, work alongside doctors um, in, in different clinics dealing with cervical cancer. Yeah, it's amazing work. I, I don't even know how you, uh, I have an octopus tattoo. And the reason why is because always doing eight things at, at once. Uh, it's one of the reasons why. So it's sort of similar to that you're always doing a million different things. Be, before I jump into, you know, what you're doing now with, uh, with We Decode, I'm curious about this whole thing because I, I see a pattern of, uh, and, and relationships are probably affected tremendously when people come out of with PTSD. And I'm sure, you know, because like I said, I have a lot of athlete friends and I have uh, people in the military and it's always this thing with the, with uh, relationships, but there's a, there's a heightened level of domestic abuse. There's a heightened level of sexual trauma uh, that veterans go through. And mm-hmm. is there a, a method or a process, does the military have something in place for them or is that something they have to go out and seek outside? And, and I understand, you know, I understand that people act out because there's a, there's a so much uh, neurochemistry that goes on and people don't know how to deal with it. You have a tremendous amount of adrenaline. You have dopamine that's pumping through your bloodstreams because you're jumping out of airplanes all the time. Well, how do you get that again? You know, it's it's hard. Well, if you walk in a bar and you punch somebody in the face, like, oh, I got some adrenaline, dopamine. Let me let me repeat that uh, kind of cycle. So uh, it becomes a lot of uh, you know, uh, I guess, poor behavior, uh, for yeah. lack of better terminology. But how do you how do you address that? And, and is that really the case uh, that that I that I'm seeing that I'm reading uh, about? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the military sexual trauma for any vets that's watching this, they can concur as well. I mean, we knew that there was military sexual trauma cases when we were on active duty. But if you go back this last couple of years, you will see that the numbers have increased and women are stepping forward about military sexual trauma. And that's why it's on heightened alert at this point, because now women are brave enough to say I was sexually assaulted. But it was happening. Whether or not these women were coming forward, you know, that's the, you know, that's the issue. But now the women are, and I'm so proud of them for doing that because it takes bravery and to be courageous to be able to do that, particularly when it's against your commanding officer. So I think what the military has done, again, as these situations come, the military has to react. You can't have an increase of domestic violence, sexual, military sexual trauma, not do anything. Right. So what has happened over the years and what I've seen happen over the years is there's more resources available to veterans, mm-hmm. either through the VA resources or through outpatient resources. Right. So even if a veteran felt like they didn't feel comfortable within the military um, system, there's now in place an opportunity for you to go outside the military and still get help. So I believe that was the military's answer to saying to folks who are suffering. And going down these dark paths that, look, if you don't want us to know and you're a vet and you have some things that you want to take care of 
and we you want some mechanisms that you can put in place to help you deal with your conditions, then here are the resources that we have. So I would definitely give the VA credit for that because there are a lot of resources, but the veterans have to tap into those resources, right? They have to want those resources. Yeah. And if they don't tap into their VA resources, then of course they will have to go out here and Google, find out the VA is going to cover it. But why not start at the VA that has a plethora of resources available to you? And so I think over the years, the military had to answer the, the situation because it was getting very grim. It was getting very dark. Wow. Yeah, it's 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 this whole notion like you see people, men and women who are so brave, right? They go out there and they battle, and they fight for freedom and all that stuff. But the fear takes over if they have to say something about a commanding officer or somebody that's, uh, uh, you know, maybe higher ranked than them, just that fear paralyzes them from saying anything. I think that's, uh, you know, that same thing with the uh, sexual abuse victims in the uh, in the general real world, I guess, uh, outside the military, too. You have the, this fear that takes over whether you're going to be believed, or you're gonna, you know, whether you're going to be stigmatized. You mentioned a scarlet letter. You're going to walk around with, a, you know, a scarlet letter for your whole life. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad that's that's changing and it's something that we really, really need to support and address and encourage people and say it's okay. Just, uh, you know, you have to be able to communicate. So getting to uh, well, today. Before you yeah. go into your yeah, next yeah. thing, before you go into the next thing, I want to say this. Yeah. I think the misconception in the community, particularly the civilian community, is that the military is a separate community. And that we are immune to these things that typically folks think happens in just the general community, the general population. The military is, is not different. There's, there's, there's folks, as we know, who are abusive in the military, folks who are alcoholics in the military. So I don't know why folks believe that just because that we are structured and we're disciplined and we wore the uniform and we're brave, that we don't have those same conditions that the average Joe Blow outside that military gate has. We're all yeah. humans. Yeah. And it, I, it, I think yeah. it's the pressure that that puts on us that we can't be human. We can't go and tell somebody that we're having problems because guess what? The civilians think that we're above and we're not. We're on the same level. And so by taking that pressure off of us, we won't feel weak and we won't have that fear to be able to go and tell our commander or our boss or even our friend, hey, girl, I'm not doing so well. That fear would be gone if that pressure was taken off. It's, it's such a great point. I think it's, it's all because of movies and TV that people see, you know, the barking sergeant in their face and you create these you know, they're still human beings, but you create these machines and that's, and you take pride in that. And how mm -hmm. dare you show any emotion you're not supposed to because Gomer Pyle showed emotion and look what happened kind of yeah. thing. Uh, you know, so, so I'm glad you brought that up. It's an excellent, excellent point uh, yeah. that, you know, everybody is human should be treated that. Okay. So how did you come up with We Decode and what, what is We Decode? What does it, what does it actually do? Yeah. So, um, you know, right after, you know, all this transition that I'm doing and all the other stuff that I'm doing in the world, um, I had a veteran come to me, Lynn, in right before COVID, um, like in 2019, I think the beginning or the middle of 2019, saying that he had um, been using cannabis as a replacement of his pharmaceuticals for his PTSD. And of course, as a clinician, I'm like, you can't do that. You need to titrate off this medication. You need to do this, do that. And he was like, no, I'm using cannabis. And 
Southern Baptist family background. <laughs> Don't do drugs. I was that girl. It was planted in my head. Don't so do I, drugs, but no it's okay drugs. to take as many pharmaceutical drugs as possible. But don't do drugs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, don't do don't do drugs. But take these pills, Sharice. Take these exactly. Pills. And so I, I never explored cannabis. I never even considered it a, a consideration for even using it for my own symptoms, more or less recommended it to another veteran. And so he and I sat and he was like, yeah, this is what I did. This is, you know, how I'm using it. And I was just like, oh my God, this is like the miracle drug. I mean, this is great. And what I started doing was I was like a sponge when I was on the internet, just typing my little fingers away. And I did my own little certification program. And then I said, wait a minute, why am I going to just have a certificate? No offense to people that get certificates, but I'm an overachiever. <laughs> so I was like, I'm going to go and get my degree in cannabis. And so I applied to the University of Maryland's medical um, cannabis science and therapeutics program, got accepted because I wanted to make sure if I'm out here talking about it, I want to have that knowledge and expertise to back it up. And for me, that was getting my master's degree in this program. So I got accepted. I'm like, okay, now what are you going to do? And I had a good mentor, which I believe in mentors to help guide you along your path. And my mentor was like, Sharissa, you're always preaching about your three P's, passion, purpose, and people. What is going to be your passion project behind this? Why are you spending 20 plus thousand dollars to get a master's degree if you're not going to do something that's going to be just passionate for you? Mm -hmm. And I said, you're right. And so I sat and I was like, okay, God, you know, what are you going to have me do with this degree? I'm a sponge. I love this plant. I'm intrigued by this plant. What do you want me to do? And you know, I'm not here to be preachy, but, you know, God always tends to kind of wake me up like three o'clock in the morning. And he woke me up like three o'clock in the morning. And he said, I want you to be able to save lives at this point. I'm like, okay, thank you. That's real general. I mean, that ain't helping me out here. And I said, I pondered that and I meditated on that land. And that's when I discovered endocana, right? So I discovered endocana <laughs> and I'm like, this is incredible. Where where has this test been? What is going on that this technology is here and I've never heard of it? And I reached out to because we, we, we suck at marketing. We suck at marketing. That's why <laughs> we're the worst. <laughs> we're gonna get better. But we, we're bad say now. Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> say nothing. So I reached out to Rachel Knox, and I was like, you know what? I want you know I don't know these group. I don't know who these folks are. I just found stumbled on their kit. What's going on? And it was her seal of approval that really fostered you and I's connection. And when you broke it down as far as how you created this technology, why you created this technology, and when you said one of the groups that you wanted to help was veterans, I knew I had found the kit that was going to be the one that was going to save and change the lives of veterans. And so then I went back to, okay, what are you going to do with this kit, Sharissa? <laughs> and I said, well, I just want to get this kit out into as many hands as possible because at the end of the day, a lot of folks are spending a lot of money on products that's not specific to them. And so to be able to educate people about the products, how it works, but even before Cannabis, knowing what conditions you're predisposed for, for me as a clinician, that was the that was the thing that attracted me to doing this. And so I, I realized that in order to to um, bring these kits to veterans, that I had to create this business. I created the business in December of 21. I 
titled it, you know, named it We Decode because I wanted folks to know that we can decode you not just for cannabis, but decode you for your health and your wellness. And and that's and that's what we do. We decode is mapping medicine's healthiest outcomes, you know, using folks' DNA as well as wellness reports. Better health through better data is is our tagline. And I think that's what folks need to know because these tests are more than just cannabinoid matching. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, thank you for saying that because uh, we always believed in uh, precision medicine. And uh, even even going over the counter and getting acetaminophen, it just says take two. Well, if I am 500 pounds or I am 80 pounds, it says take two. If I'm an ultra-rapid metabolizer or I'm a poor metabolizer, still takes take two. So, I mean, there's got to be a better way. And that's why I, I kind of always thought there's got to be a better way. And how do we know how these things interact together? Drug to drug interaction. I mean, we've used pharmacogenomics for years to do that, but it just hasn't been available for the general public. Uh, you go to a pharmacist and you do their consultation, they'll tell you that stuff. But yourself being empowered to make a decision just with your supplements, that's, uh, that's definitely something that, uh, you know, we need to do a better job of, and uh, I'm glad you're you're out there as a as an amazing ambassador for not just our technology, but you know just being able to how to utilize this technology to help a lot more people, uh, and that's what it's all about. Um, you know, the the key thing for me is I'm 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 such an analytical um, person. When when I really dove into the kits and understanding the wellness reports, understanding the technology and predispositions and and things of that nature. I came up with this formula. I mean, because I think of things medically, <laughs> right? And I'm like, what this kit allows, it allows for early detection, right? Knowing your DNA, knowing what you predispose for, that's early detection. When you add early detection plus some type of treatment, i.e. that can be holistic, that can be through pharmaceuticals, that can be through cannabis, plant medicine. When you know what you know, do early detection early treatment, what does that do? That saves lives. And for me, that I was like, look, at the end of the day, what's on that other side of the equal sign, which is saving lives, is what these kits are about. It, it, and for me, that's why the business is driven by wellness and it's driven by knowing what you're predisposed for. And if you choose those treatment options, plant medicine, you know, pharmaceuticals or whatever, when you know thyself, you're able to make more and better informed decisions and you're empowered to make better decisions about your health. Wouldn't you want to do that? Wouldn't you want to know that information? It seems like a no-brainer to me. Yeah, it's a hundred percent, but it goes against the model that traditional uh, healthcare is, uh, it does now. First of all, you know, we have an amazing subscription model by the pharmaceutical industry. They have no interest in, in uh, preventative medicine or and that, that's the whole goal of functional medicine. You just said you find out what you're predisposed to, what you have, and maybe you can address that before it expresses itself. Uh, that goes against pharmaceutical industry uh, you know, mandates because that's, that's not what they're interested in. And then also yep. being able to create protocols that make, you, uh, that, that make you better before you actually become sick. And then if you actually become sick, you know that what you're going to take is aligned with you personally. So that, that kind of thing goes against uh, my, it's funny. I, I was invited to participate in a, a, uh, 
I think it was a Zoom with the major hospital groups and pharmaceutical companies. Were, I have no idea what I was doing on this, but I was invited. So I'm like, I'm just flying the wall and I'm, I'm, I'm listening to this thing. And they're talking about, and it blew my mind. And one of their biggest mandates in 2023 is they're saying the highest uh, diabetes is on the rise. That is the biggest thing they're trying to address is diabetes across, you know, all kinds of different communities. So I was like, okay, well, interesting. Great. Maybe they're going to talk about blood sugar levels. Maybe they're going to talk about nutrition. What can we do to come in these communities to stop? You drive to some communities and it's like a fast food restaurant on every single corner and you go into your 7-Eleven and you buy your food. It just makes no sense. You don't have that. So I'm like, all right, we're, we're talking my language. And what they were trying to do was figure out a way how to reduce the price of insulin so it's more affordable. And I was sitting there and you can't speak, but you can type in your question. And I typed in my question. I said, wonderful. That's great. Uh, insulin should be affordable, and, you know, maybe even free, but I understand everything is a, is a business. How about preventing that diabetes, that high blood sugar? How about, you know, being able to talk about a preventative, educating people on nutrition, what things they can consume in you know, like for me, being a quasi-biohacker, I wore a glucose monitor for a couple of weeks just to see for myself which kind of foods spike my glucose. What about doing like something wow. like that? And they said, yeah. and they were like, uh, yeah, we, we have programs. You can go on, and I don't want to mention who it is, but you can go on their website and go on to preventative uh, pro- so you read blogs about like better nutrition, but there's no way they're interested in promoting any of this stuff. So we, we as consumers have to do a better job of being, as you said, empowered with information. So when you speak to your healthcare professional, you, you can be, it's a collaboration. You're, you're collaboratively looking at what can I do to make sure that I live a longer, but healthier life, not lifespan, but health span. And that's what we started this mandate. I said, you know, to my business partner, our, our team, what do we want to achieve? How do we measure our own success? Well, if we can add seven years of healthy health lifespan or health span to each individual, that's our mandate. That's our goal. How do we measure that? Well, maybe we'll come up with a bio- biological age meter. There's a bunch of them. There's Horvath's clock mm-hmm. and a bunch of different things. So now that you have your genetic predispositions, now you can look at what a protocol you're consuming, and you can see some of those things changing. So the goal is, yes, we can't change our chronological age, you know, but we can change our biological age by doing these things, uh, as you mentioned, you know, uh, interventions that are more personalized uh, to the individuals. Um, And I I think that's why the integrative, that's why the integrative um, medicine method works. And I'm glad a lot of practices are going towards um, integrative medicine because now you're putting the patient at the center of the wheel. And if the patient wants to explore different things, right, it's no longer the provider that is at the wheel. It's the patient that's at the wheel. So if the patient says, no, no, I don't want to do pharmaceutical, sir. I want to do cannabis. I want to do psychedelics. I want to do some Rinke. I want to do some yoga. I want to do some other type of holistic, um, you know, off options. Mm-hmm. The patient is at the center and everyone else is around the spoke, which now allows 
for folks to be able to now potentially do things that's against the grain, against what's the norm, against what's used to be the old model on yeah. taking care of patients and, and health care. So I love the integrative model because this fits directly into integrative model, uh, integrative medicine. Yeah, 100%. Tell me about Tumbleweed with Killer Mike. Oh my God. You know what? Let me tell you, if I ever had a pinch myself moment, that was the moment. And my very first moment of pinch myself was before I left the military, um, I was in the ICU and um, back then President Obama was our president and he was coming through Walter Reed as he often does to check on patients to say, thank you guys for your service or whatever. I just hope so happened to be on the unit that day. And he just so happened to be looking in on my patient that day. And for those people that don't know me, I seized the moment at any cost. And I'll never forget um, President Obama's um, security team. We, we have to be brief. This is the president. This is what you do. You stand tall. You stay right here. You don't move. You don't ask him anything. They, they've never met Sharice Jackson. So, <laughs> so he, he, he went to see my patient. We were all standing in the hallway waiting for him to come shake our hands and, you know, take a picture with him or whatever. And, and, the, and the security guy was like, shake his hand, say yes, sir, no, sir, and let him go through. We got other things we got to do. So I can see the security guard like looking at me like, I bet she's going to be a problem. I am. <laughs> so he, the President Obama is walking towards us. And I'm just like, this is the freaking president. And I don't get excited about celebrities and things that I need, but the president, that's a different story. Yeah. So he's walking towards us and I'm on the front row. I feel little beady bees popping up on my forehead. <laughs> Man, Shreesh, this ain't you. You don't get nervous over nobody, but it's the president. So he comes up and he's, he's shaking everybody's hand. And again, I positioned myself that I was going to be the last one that he got to talk to because I had, I had intentions. I had an agenda. Yeah. So he comes through and now he's coming to me. And my name tag says Captain Jackson. He's like, hey, Captain Jackson, how are you, sir? Again, the security guy say, yes, sir. No, sir. And don't say nothing else to the president. He got to get up out of here. Okay. So he comes to me. Hey, Captain Jackson. I'm like, hi, sir. How are you doing? How are your daughters? How's Michelle? How are you liking, you know, DC? You know, how's the dog? Don't you have a dog? He and I are having this long dialogue. And I can see the security guard over there like, oh, <laughs> and I was like, no, no, I'm going to seize this moment. So I say that to say when I met Killer Mike, it was kind of the same feeling. I get, I didn't get the BDBs on my forehead and I didn't get nervous, but I know Killer Mike is a force and he has such um, a network and I love the work that he's doing. And it came to be because Weez Matt um, and I had been doing some work together and they were looking for um, a veteran's perspective on cannabis. And because of the work that I had done with Weeds Map, they thought I would be a great person to speak about veterans and cannabis and how things are happening in D.C. and the V.A. And so sure enough, they flew me to New York. Um, Killer Mike was doing this four um, city series. Um, it was supposed to be on um, Netflix, but instead of Netflix, it ended up being on the Vice Network. And so I was one of the New York um, folks that he interviewed um, in New York. So if you go to the Vice Network, you look for Tumbleweeds and you see his series, there should be four episodes there. So I'm in the episode for New York. And we talk about, you know, veterans and access to cannabis. And he's a great dude, man. I, I declare he's so down to earth. 
You know, I, to be honest with you, I didn't know who he was until these Matt was like, hey, you want to read up on Killer Mike? Was. I was like, okay, I'll read up on Killer Mike. But once I realized who he was, I was just like, man, he's a powerful force. Therefore, once again, seize the moment, have an agenda, be intentional. And it was a great conversation, man. And it seems like, you know, when I don't think about that tumbleweed interview, um, social media will remind me of that video that um, Weeds Matt put out with him and I talking about. Yeah, I, I just rewatched. Uh, he had Fat Five Freddy on there, too, which, uh, you know, he <laughs> Fat Five, he did he he did this documentary on cannabis. That's one of the best documentaries I've ever seen. He's one of the only ones that actually started with the history of prohibition and all that other stuff. The jazz musicians, the, you know, why we called it marijuana and all that stuff. Fantastic job. So if anybody, I think it's on Netflix too. I, I don't remember the name, but if anybody can look up Freddy, Fat Five Freddy uh, Cannabis uh, Documentary. Uh, plus, I mean, Freddy's got an amazing background with, you know, the Studio 54 community and and uh, Bosquet and all these other Blondie. So I just, uh, you know, check it out. I think it's cool. So uh, any Yeah, aspirate? I met him last year, by the way. Uh, I met him did? at the Black Cannabis um, Science Conference in New Orleans last year. Great dude, man. Good, yeah. I mean, solid. Solid. Yeah, it's super. He's probably got a gazillion stories uh, uh, to tell. I'd, I'd love to pick his brain a little bit. Any aspirations for uh, uh, Hollywood? Now that you're, uh, you know, getting more and more on uh, on uh, TV and and pro, <laughs> you know and what? I- that kind of stuff don't bother me, man. Right? You know, I've had, and, and this is not being braggadocious or anything like that, but I've had opportunities to to be like on set to make sure the military aspect of the movie is being captured the right way, and people were bringing me in to be like, we just want to make. sure sure we capture a woman veteran in the right light and we want to make sure we do her justice i've been on you know opportunities like that i've been asked to do little small parts in different movies but that's really not who i am man i mean i'll take them because it's, it's about networking and getting me to that next level where i want to go but i, I have no ask if it comes now i'm not going to turn nothing down by no yeah. means but that's yeah not I, something I take it because because it creates well it creates a platform so i was asked to be a consultant on a on a show called Disjointed on a oh, yeah. on Netflix. Yeah. It, it could have been such a great show, but it just wasn't because uh, the the studio laugh track made it weird, made it kind of hokey, and it wasn't a serious show. Which there there are no real serious shows that deal with with cannabis. I mean, there's documentaries, but there's no yeah. you know you still have people coming back from work pouring themselves you know, a glass of bourbon or whatever it is. And that's normal. And they, and that's in every show and they drink and drink, but nobody comes in and lights up a joint. I, I remember Montel was telling me, Montel Williams, uh, well, he was telling me that he's like, every single time I go to a Hollywood party, they come to me and we go out and everybody's, all the directors, producers, all the bigwigs, everybody's consuming cannabis. But when you actually ask them about, would they put this into their shows? Uh, you know, we're not ready yet. So. We need to get rid of that. Why? Why can you drink, you know, two, three glasses of alcohol and have and be it'd be fine, but nobody's like, you know, let's let's share a gummy or something like that. Microdose. But anyway, I, I it's dig- that stigma, digress. man. People are still out here. People are still out here with that stigma, Lynn. And you know, you you still have folks hanging on and 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 not still convinced, right? Yeah. No matter how much research is out here, 
folks are still not convinced. But, um, you know, if the right opportunity comes, you know, I, I do believe God make provisions for his vision. And if that provision comes along and is in alignment with my vision for We Decode, I would definitely accept it because this cause is greater than me. It's about saving and changing the lives of people, not just veterans, but people in our community that can benefit from this plant um, because it's definitely saving and changing the lives of folks. Are you uh, twins identical or fraternal? They're fraternal. Okay. Yeah. I just had an ADD moment. It just kicked in. I'm, like, <laughs> I'm curious. I'm curious. So let me just ask. Are, yes, are, you, are we even doing a show or are we just talking? We're doing a show. I don't know. <laughs> No, no, no. They're fraternal and one is getting married um, wow. this year. So on top of all the other things that I'm doing, I'm helping her with her wedding planning. And and uh, I'm so elated for her. So happy for her. And it's going to be a beautiful wedding um, come um, Labor Day weekend. Wow. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm When you were talking about like moving your uh, your kids into college, and I, I'll be doing that next year. My, I'll be I'll be an empty nester. So I'll, I'll be yes. all by myself. It'll be, it'll be interesting time. <laughs> I'm getting a little misty about it now, but we'll, we'll move on. I, I want to ask you a question about art. So yeah. I read somewhere that that's something that you had an interest in art and architecture and you, you used to sketch yeah. if, if that's, if that's true uh, or not. It, do you still do any of that stuff? Or are you still interested in art? Yeah. In high school, right. I was trying to figure out my path again, you know, figuring out what I was going to do with my life after I left home. And I sketched a lot um, while I was in high school and was pretty good at it, actually. Um, and that was my own way of just dealing with that little town that I was in yeah. and, and, and and having to find an escape. And, and it really I horn in on my artistic skills after my grandmother died. Um, my grandmother was one of my biggest motivators and, and she was my cheerleader man. And I, I needed a way to channel, you know, what I was feeling, what I was going through. And so it was really art that did that. And so because I was good at it, I mean, I could see something, you know, I can't do it now Lynn, in my fifties, but back then <laughs> in my teens, I could literally see something and I would have photographic memory and I can just go home and and just sketch that bad boy to the letter, to the T. And it garnered the the watchful eye of one of my artists, uh, instructors at school. And I had actually sketched the, the um, amphitheater, you know, back in the day, you know, the, the, the Greek amphitheater where they did the gladiator and all that stuff. Yeah. I had actually sketched that out. Just one day I told my mom and dad to give me a big old white poster board. And I was just sketching, sketching. It took me a couple of weeks to complete it. And I actually took it into school one day to show my art director. And she was like, you did this? I was like, yeah, isn't it pretty cool? And she was critiquing it and this, that, and the other. And she was like, you really have an eye for architecture. And I was like, really? She was like, yeah. So then at that moment, I thought, oh, you know, I'll be an architecture, uh, into architecture when I left high school and become an architect, but I never did. And then, um, you know, I went into nursing, but occasionally I'll still sketch. I, I still have an eye for, you know, really nice buildings and lines. And, you know, in our house, we have a lot of beautiful artwork. Um, I, I love seeing color. I love abstract. If anyone sees the new brand for our box for We Decode is very abstract. It's very me because it's kind of chaotic, but it's tamed. And I think when I sketch, that's how I am. I'm chaotic with colors. But when you sit back and look at the finished piece, it's, it's very tamed and it's, and it's abstract, but it's cool. Right. And so. Well, that's the that's the kind of stuff that I do. Um, not as often as I used to because you know I got so many other things. But I when know. I have time to do it, I still do it. 
Yeah, I know. It's, 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 I was, at one point I was painting a lot and then, uh, I just stopped. I, but it's, it's definitely a great therapy and a great outlet to be able to, uh, you know, whatever's got you got going on inside, put on canvas. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. So I have a few questions that I ask all my guests and, okay. uh, uh, just want to make sure that you're ready for them. Um, okay. Well, please describe your first experience with cannabis. My first experience with cannabis was nothing. It did nothing. I was like, what are you guys ranting and raving about? And I was sitting with a group of people and everybody is giddy. They're happy. Their eyes are all sparkly. And I'm sitting there like, when is it going to happen for me? <laughs> what's, what's going on here? And so it really made me question. I'm just like, is my genetics not <laughs> taking this plant? What's happening here? But my first encounter was that. It, it absolutely did nothing. I didn't get high. No one taught me how to smoke. Because again, I didn't smoke. I didn't do drugs or anything like that. So I was just doing what I was seeing other folks do. So I don't know if I inhaled properly. I couldn't tell you what the CBD THC content was in this thing. But my first experience, Lynn, um, it, nothing happened. But boy, when we went to Dominican Republic, and maybe I should be saying this on television or, or, or on this podcast, but when we went to the DR, woo, it, it kicked in. <laughs> so, not sure what was going on there, but um, uh, after my Dominican um, Dominican Republic experience, um, then I started having you know some good experiences with cannabis. My yeah. first experience was not. A yeah, I, a lot of people have an experience where they don't they don't know what it is, so they don't really get high on their first time. Yeah, um, yeah, not me, but a lot of people. I I definitely got high my first time, uh, but my second time, okay. I think I was sold tea, uh, so I don't think I, it was actually real weed. It was a nickel bag with stuff okay. on it, but I don't I don't think that that was real weed. <laughs> All right, um, obviously, I'm a big music guy, and you know um, that as well. Curious with all your, you know, all your uh, different things that you're doing, if you have time to go to any shows, if you, uh, if you have, what was the, uh, well, first of all, what was the very first concert that you ever attended? The very first concert I ever attended was um, a new edition concert back in the day. Um, I think I was in Virginia when new edition was hot, right? And so I went to um, a new edition concert. And uh, we had nosebleeds. So, you know, we were just, you know, being young, crazy folks back in that day. Um, but yeah, that was my first concert. Um, what was the last now, one? My last one was Bruno Mars um, last um, in 2021. 2021 was Bruno Mars when he came here to DC at the, um, um, the um, National Harbor. Yeah. Do you remember like the very first... Uh album or cd or whatever tape that you ever bought yourself yeah uh my ex my ex-husband when we were in tech school actually bought me a cassette baby faces first cd first album was on cassette yeah um is there anything that you're listening to these days that uh, you may want to recommend to people man I, I listen to a lot of things right right john legend is like um you know my go-to artist that i absolutely door. Um, he actually, I had a connection to his agent when I was in Iraq in 2006. So I actually got to talk to John Legend when I was in Iraq and that was pretty darn cool. 
And so he will forever and ever be my number one um, artist that I listen to. But besides that, you know, I'm a Chris Stapleton fan. Um, um, yeah, that dude can 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 really blow Jasmine Jasmine Sullivan's band. Um, I, I go old school too on 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 my radio. Um, I'm, I have my series XM channel on Groove, so I can listen to the old school um, music. Um, so it's just a, it's, it's just an array of different things. You're right. I, 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 I like, you know, me some Mick Jagger, you know, when I'm, I'm on my Peloton and, you know, I can go hard rock on that Peloton. So it's just different things. It just depends on the mood that I'm in. Right. It just yep. depends on the mood and what mood I'm trying to get to. <laughs> so, um, that's how I kind of pick music. Yeah. It's, uh, I think Chris Stapleton did a great job in the Super Bowl. Babyface too. They were, they were both yeah. there. So there you go. Uh, even though my team lost, but it's okay. Well, we won't talk about it. Maybe uh, next year. <laughs> definitely next year. Um, what has cannabis meant in your life? Man, that's a good question. Um, what is meant is it is it, taking me out of my comfort zone um, because I was a little hesitant when I first decided to explore this career, right? In cannabis, um, I had to disclose to my family, you know, hey, I'm going to be talking about cannabis. And they're like, what? So um, it gave me courage is what cannabis gave me um, to be able to talk about it and talk about it openly and to see the impact that I can have in people's lives by being able to guide them, you know, with the right recommendations and just be able to sit and destigmatize this plant. So for me, cannabis gave me courage um, to just overcome even my own stigma about what this plant was back in the day and to be able to be open um, to what experiences, what connections um, it brings. I'm open to it. I'm totally open. I'm totally out there. Like folks say, you know, you, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out. Yeah. out. <laughs> no, I, I know exactly what you mean. I remember the, the, the moment that I had to, I changed my LinkedIn profile that included cannabis. I'm like, I'm, I'm coming out of the cannabis closet. There is no going back. You're mm-hmm. there. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad you were, you were able to do that. All right. Yeah. Final question. It's a bonus question. Please describe what your room looked like growing up. Well, when, again, you know, six kids, five of us lived with my mom and dad and my brother actually lived with my grandmother. So we were in kind of two separate households, even though my grandmother was very influential in, in you know, taking care of us. So my um, my bedroom was three beds um, and at different ages, you know, um, you know, we would share beds, right? Because there's five girls. And you only had one bedroom that had three beds in it. So you do the math, you know, two of us had to sleep with, um, you know, another sibling. And so um, that humbled me. And I'm still humbled to this day, knowing that that's where I came from. Um, But the room was small and it provided, you know, a a safe environment to me. Um, It it provided a bed. It provided security, provided, you know, someplace clean and warm um but yeah it was small and um, i shared it with my siblings no no like artwork no posters no uh magazine stuff no religious yeah i mean yeah back in the day you know we had that magazine called was it called right out or whatever that 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 um magazine from mtv that you can they would have big pictures of people in the middle of it and you can yeah. take it out and put it on the wall so we would do that with, with magazine um the pictures i mean and on the, on the wall would be whoever was hot then i remember having new edition 
you know, up there on the wall and Michael Jackson on the wall and Prince on the wall. Um, so those types of people were on the wall. Got it. Okay, cool. So, Teresa, where can people find out more about Code? contact you, or uh, anything that you want to people to contact you for? Just plug away. Yeah, so Code, you can go to WeDecode.me. Um, if you want to, um, you know, learn more about me, you know, we have a bio page there on the website. You can learn about me. You can learn about Operation Give Hope, which is a um, end of the business where you can donate kits and donate money to buy um, our DNA kits for veterans there. Um, we had the pleasure of having Amazon donate some funds to Operation Give Hope last year. And we had the NBA team Atlanta Hawks that donated money to Operation Give Hope last year. And we'll continue that this year as well. So this is a way to just give back. Instead of telling veterans, thank you for your service, you can actually do something about it. So going to the website, you'll learn a lot about me. But I tell you, the biggest, the, the best way to find out about all the things I'm doing is just to Google me. Just plug my name into that Google search and you'll see everything that I've been doing and have been doing um, up until this time. Yeah, you definitely have a lot of content out there. So uh, I just want to say, first of all, thank you for uh, being on the show. Really appreciate your time. And I know you're busy. And and I also want to say thank you for being a partner. I'm super grateful to be in business with you and super grateful to know you as a human being and all the yeah. contribution you make. And, you know, I, I think that together we can do some amazing things and really, really change the world for for sure, for the better. So. No, Lynn, I appreciate you, man. I, I, I say to folk a lot, you know, had I not discovered you and your technology, um, I wouldn't be here today impacting the lives of these veterans. And for folks who are following our t- content and watching our videos, that's real. That's not something that's scripted. This is real life testimonial, real life experiences that these veterans are having. And at the end of the day, if it's one veterans, if it's a thousand veterans, if it's a million veterans, if you and I as partners can impact their lives and we can save one, Instead of 22 dying each day to suicide, if we can save those 22, I think you and I could sleep a little bit better knowing that not on our watch did we lose 22 given the technology that we have. So that's my goal. That's truly, um, you know, my, my passion behind this project and, and, and behind, you know, partnering with you is because our visions are aligned. And um, that's that's my hope. My, my hope for 23 is to continue this partnership and getting us stronger and, and just being out here impacting the world. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, my name's Kate and I'm your host of the Pop Moms Podcast. I started the Pop Moms Podcast, well, because I wanted to end the stigma against using cannabis, specifically with moms, but also anyone who chooses to consume. I strive for a balance of humor and education, along with some pretty rad guests, to help combat social biases that come with consuming cannabis. Kids are hard. Join me for regular podcast episodes packed with parenting hacks, real-life stories, and of course, my favorite cannabis products. The days are long, but the years are short. So roll another J and take a deep breath. Keep blazing and stay amazing.